Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Hey, diggers. This is Kosh. I enjoyed putting together a few album covers for Rod Stewart. Sometime in the mid-70s, Rod and I, quite coincidentally, decided that the London music scene was moving to the West Coast. We met up in L.A., and the Atlantic Crossing album cover came to pass. It depicts Rod traversing the pond with one foot in Old Blighty and the other landing in the New World, both to our mutual satisfaction. We hatched up a few more ideas for future album covers in our beloved watering hole, The Cock and Bull, on Sunset Strip. Google it. So now, Sir Rod is teaming up with the always amazing Cindy Lauper on tour this summer. And on August 28th, they make a stop at the Event Centre in Reno, Nevada. Don't miss this dynamic duo. Visit Ticketmaster.com or call 888-288-1833. Presented by The Row and Harrah's Reno. DIY and Howl Studios presents... From Hollywood, California. Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now... Let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Welcome to the Art of Rock with Caution Friends, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. I am the aforementioned Kosh, and I'm behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. I have had a long career designing cover art, logos, posters, and the like for rock and roll artists. About 2,000 album covers last time I checked, or at least so I'm told, for hundreds of different artists. Put it this way, you've seen some of my work. Quick plug for the brand new website, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, all that sort of thing. That's where you find it. The network is growing like a weed every day, so do stop by. Subscribe, rate, review, and please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology. Right, that's the business. Now let's do the show. We walked the loneliest mile. We smiled without any style. We kissed all together wrong. No intention. We lied about each other's dreams. We live without each other thinking what anyone would do without me and you. It's like I told you, only the lonely can play. Archaeologists the world over. Drum roll, please. I'm thrilled to have the incomparable Val Garay in the studio. Val has garnered over 100 gold and platinum records with nine Grammy nominations. And in 1981, he won a Grammy for Record of the Year. 
Betty Davis Eyes with Kim Carnes. He has worked with the Motels, Bonnie Raitt, Dolly Parton, Pablo Cruz, James Taylor, Queensryche, Neil Diamond, Ringo Starr, Linda Ronstadt. I could go on, and we will. Ladies and gentlemen, let's talk with super producer Val Gray. Legendary Val Gray, producer and engineer, who has probably put more hit records together than I've had hot dinners. And I would like you to uh, sit back and listen to his story. And the first question I am going to ask is, where did it all start? How was your dad influenced you? And where did you get into this like sort of amazing career that sort of just blows about everyone else's rose- resumes off the planet? Okay. Hi, John. <laughs> <laughs> Dear boy, hello. Lovely to you see you. You forgot to mention that we've been hanging out together oh, for, for 40, 40 years. Oh, for 40-odd years. Yeah. But, yeah, but you know, yeah, I'm so much... 40. Yeah, 40 fucking years. I was but, eight, you were six. Yes, yes exactly. No, I was six. No, the other way around. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Who's counting anymore? It doesn't matter yeah. anymore. <laughs> anyway, so how did it all begin? Okay. Please, um, yes. My father was a singer and an actor. He started in 1932 at a very famous venue in San Francisco called the Fox Theater, which was at that time uh, a movie theater and a vaudeville theater. Uh, He started out as a singer and became very popular in San Francisco, the Bay Area. And he went on to do like 31 or two films uh, internationally. He starred in the third movie Walt Disney made called The Three Caballeros. Wow. Um, he was in It Happened One Night which, there's a very famous scene in that movie where they're on the bus and the guy's singing The Man in the Flying Trapeze oh yes and of that course. was my father oh, yeah, yeah 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 I forgot that yeah um, I love you know he's, he did one of the first Lana Turner movies where he co-starred with her and Howard Keel and Joel McRae and I don't know the list goes on forever and you know and he sang in you know famous venues all over the world um, and my Uncle, who was his brother, who I love dearly, was a guitar player, uh, an excellent kind of orchestral-styled mm-hmm. guitar player. Oh. And so he started teaching me how to play guitar uh, when I was around 9 or 10, and I loved writing songs. So I started writing. In fact, I found some lyrics from some of the songs I wrote when I was like 12. Um, oh, we got to post those. Yeah, I, I found them. <laughs> we got to post them. I, I, seriously, I found some of them. Oh, it was like... You know, the, the titles were hysterical, like, uh, I want you back. <laughs> you know, oh, we've been there, haven't we? We've all been they there. They were all yeah, very right. simple, it's you know, three-word titles, everything, right? So, so and and in that period of time, uh, you know, I, I played guitar. I was kind of like a closet guitar player, mm-hmm. I would say, because I did a lot of other things, too, in school, play sports and 
all the other normal things that kids do growing up. Um, but in San Francisco, in San Francisco, yeah. we were, we lived in when I was born till I was about six or seven or eight. I don't remember now, but somewhere in that uh, range, we lived in uh, St. Francis Woods, which is over by Twin Peaks. Uh, and then we moved down to Burlingame Hillsboro, where I went to high school, and Stanford University down the road. Mm. And I went to Stanford for uh, six years, uh, four years of undergrad and two years of graduate school at the Stanford School of Medicine, studying to become a vascular surgeon. Ah, vascular surgeon. A friend of mine who we went to high school with, um, Ron Elliott, started a band, and so... I became infatuated with that idea, and he put together a band called the Bo Brummels, which had three very big national hits in that period of time, uh, Laugh, Laugh, Just a Little, and You Tell Me Why, and uh, Ron wrote all those songs. Ron and I eventually came back around and were in a band called Pan, signed to Clive Davis. Oh. Uh, record came out about the same time as the Loggins and Messina's first Clive record. was at Columbia then? He Columbia was, Records, yeah, right, okay. uh, Pan, and it was Ron Elliott, myself, right, okay. and the singer Keith Barber, who had a big hit in, in 1969 called Echo Park. Mm, yes. Yeah. Great song about the Vietnam War. So being surrounded by these people and, and that whole thing, I, I got more and more interested in playing music, and I met a cocktail waitress. Here it who comes. talked me <laughs> into playing in this band in in this bar in San Mateo. And, you know, by the time we got done playing at 2 in the morning and she got done cleaning the glasses and putting everything away, it was 4 in the morning and those 8 a.m. lab classes got harder and harder oh, to make. Oh, dear. Yes, I understand. Eventually, yeah. I just said, you know, yeah. adios. But the the whole reason that I was there... My father was a very big star in in his era, and wherever I went as a child, you know, well, first of all, I mean, imagine your father picking you up from high school in his Cadillac Eldorado convertible, oh, you know. Well, 1953, I don't know. Seven, with, eight. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. And, and every year he'd go down to Hillcrest Motors and buy one, you know. Oh, so, I'm you know. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it was funny, but... You know, he he was um, he was an interesting man. I mean, he had tremendous elegance and was an incredibly good-looking guy. Mm. You know, like I mean, yourself. Well, I think my father was really pretty. I yeah. mean, he was way good-looking. In fact, I have a beautiful poster which I think you've seen when you walk in the house on the wall on the right when you come in yes. the front door, signed to him from Errol Flynn, who was his best friend of yeah, thirty years. Yeah, that's a beautiful picture. Basically, yeah. saying you know. You're the guy with the big... Uh, <laughs> but it's written in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> it, it says... It, Miguel can translate this. It says, Pija. Pija. Oh, okay. <laughs> my father, Joaquin Garay. Thank you. Thank but you what's so funny much. is... is my That's allowed, isn't it? My is it allowed? You're allowed to pass me notes. Yes. yes okay. My grandfather's cool. name is Joaquin Garay. Okay, got it. Cool. My father's name is Joaquin Garay. And my younger brother's name oh. is Joaquin Garay. Wow. And he also is an actor. Who starred in a movie called Herbie Goes Bananas when he was 14. Oh, wow. Which is funny because they both starred in Disney movies. Yes, that's true. My father and my brother. So, anyway, so cocktail waitress, Sam Mateo, (laughs) drop out of medical school. Oh. uh, Moved to Hollywood. Right. Okay, this is what I want to get to now. Well, this is a great part of the story. Okay, here we go. Here we go. So, I moved to Hollywood with, with my friend Rick Day, who was the bass player. 
yeah. who I en ended up in that band with, eventually with Eddie Ho, signed to Lou Adler, called The Giant Sunflower. Yeah. <laughs> but you want to know something interesting? Yes. Did you ever hear the phrase flower power? Yes, of course. Coined from the name of that band. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, because that was one associated with When it was on the radio, getting played oh, at KFWB, yeah. B. Mitchell Reed oh, said, KFWB, yeah, said yeah. wow, that's flower power. And it was phrase was coined. So there's history. Yeah, that's literally. really cool. Yeah. And and Lou made us go stand outside the parking lot, now which is on Hollywood Lou? Boulevard, Adler. Yeah, yeah Lou Adler. To okay. wait for B. Mitchell Rudy when he came out to thank him. He called us uh, up and said, "You have to go do that." <laughs> it was right. a directive. <laughs> that sounds like Lou Adler. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I started playing. In bands, but I'd moved to Hollywood and I had no place to live. Of course. So I went and slept on my father's couch because he was living in Los Angeles at the time. Oh. And uh, I slept on his couch for about, I don't know, three months. And then I got into a house up in Laurel Canyon on Amour. Oh, the famous Laurel Canyon. So yes. Now we're in so now we're on, company. Now we're right. on Amour, which is if you come down from Mulholland, it's about the third street you yep. can turn right on. Yeah. And the house was the Sons of Adam. Okay. Um, I can't think of the name of the band that lived across the street, but they were also signed to Charlie and Brian, who was the Buffalo Springfield. Which right, signed okay. To oh, yeah. Charlie Buffalo. and Brian. Yeah, right. Charlie Green and Brian Stone. Yeah. And there was a two-bedroom house, and there was five people staying in the house at the time. And then this band moved up from San Diego, and they slept on the floor for six months. And that was the Iron Butterfly. Oh, wow. And that was the house. Oh my God! On a moor. Yes, you see, this is like this the whole sort of canyon thing is yes. like coming together. And then so cohesive. So. When I finally moved out of there, I moved over onto Formosa between Sunset and Fountain. Okay. In the same building with Neil Young next door to me and Dickie okay. Davis, okay. the road manager. Yeah. And the famous Formosa Buffalo Cafe. Yes, right. Formosa. We used to call it the Formosa Arms. <laughs> So that was kind of that part of the end of the 60s. Then um, I just, you know, I, I started playing in bands and writing songs. Right. So when did you sort of get into the sound factory and start sort of Well, engineering? I'll tell you how all that happened. So, yeah, because that's so really I'm, I'm going through the whole band thing. I got signed to Lou Adler. Then that whole thing kind of fell apart and... I, you know, fumbled around for a while, and then I got into the band with Ron Elliott, and we got signed to Columbia Records and Clive Davis. Okay. And um, our manager at the time was Abe Hawk. The single was phenomenal, but it ended up, the day the album was released, Clive Davis got fired. Oh, right, before and, he started Arista and, and all that stuff. the promotion yeah. staff took a liking to... Uh, the Logs of a Senior record. With, this had a song on it called Lady Honey that was all over the radio. Yeah, right. And so that kind of fell apart. So then I got to a point where I was like, I don't know, i got to do something different. So I, I became part of a production company that was headed by Michael Gruber. Michael Gruber's history was he was partners with Andrew Lou Goldham in the oh, Stones Oh, yeah, period. okay, Stones. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now he was managing Moby Grape. He was managing... Arthur Lee in love, and he was oh, managing Arthur Lee. me. Yes, yeah, right. Okay. So he he was friends with Don Shane, who who's the head of Decca, and so he put this deal together for this band. So that Decca I found. will be London, London. Well, Decca, London, same thing. Yeah, MCA. Okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. And right, yeah. so he put this deal together where I could produce this band uh, for Decca, which I did, but 
we needed a studio to record it. Well, unbeknownst to me, Michael was very close friends with Dave Hassinger, who okay. owned the Sound Factory. Right. And the reason he was is because all the records that Michael was around through the Rolling Stones, uh, Satisfaction, uh, Under My Thumb, 19th Nervous mm. Breakdown, all those songs were done by Dave Hassinger at RCA Studios in Hollywood. Right, okay, as opposed to Glenn Jones later. Yeah. Well, Glenn Johns later, or maybe the last time was Glenn Johns, but yeah, all so. the yeah. hits from that point through Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby, were all done at the uh, RCA in Hollywood okay. by Hassinger. And from the money he made and, and producing on the side, he bought the Sound Factory. So now Michael says to me, you want to record? we got to go to the Sound Factory and see Dave Hassinger. So we went to the Sound Factory and and hired Dave Hassinger to engineer this mm -hmm. record that I was producing. And then I started producing records with wow. Hassinger as the engineer. I produced Johnny Tillotson. I produced a girl singer named Evie Sands. Um, I can't think of the other acts, but there was all these obscure <laughs> acts that I was getting to produce, but, but nothing yeah. was happening. So Hassinger said to me one day, he said, you know, you got great ears. Why don't you come to work for me? And I said, mm -hmm. okay, I will. <laughs> So I went to work for him for $100 a week, <laughs> running up to the corner to the sandwich shop. Yeah, I know it very well, that sandwich yeah. shop. Yes, and uh, a year later, uh, I brought in a band from East L.A. called El Chicano. Yes. Cut a single with them called Brown Eyed Girl that became a oh. big hit. Oh, the, the, the Them song. Yeah, the Them song, the yeah, Van the Morrison the them song. song. Yeah, right, and right. Uh, off it went. Then wow. about three months after that, Peter Asher booked the studio for, with Dave. Okay. Oh, I see. I wondered how that happened. Okay. He yeah. he booked the studio with Dave yeah. because Dave was the name and the draw, and everybody knew Dave Hassinger. And Dave was about fifty-five then and was kind of like over it. <laughs> so unlike ourselves. Unlike ourselves. So <laughs> Peter and Linda came in and started working on this record, but. Dave was like, I, I got to get home. I got this young kid who's really good. You should work with him. Oh. And after two days of me being pawned off on Peter, <laughs> Peter called him up and said, we like him. You can stay yeah. home. It's obvious, right? <laughs> so, so that's how it started with Peter. And then we we did Heart Like a Wheel, which went which, yeah. through the roof. Right. That was two in number Capitol, one was singles. That? That was number one. Yeah, yeah, well, no. Wasn't it? It came out on Capitol, oh. but it wasn't a Capitol record. Oh, tell me, tell me. Well, the deal she made with Geffen to get out of her capital deal uh. was at any time they could take an album that she did and put it out on capital, but they would let her go to asylum, which she did right. that album before that, the one which she's in the pigsty, I forgot what it was called, oh, Don't yeah, Cry Now or something. Terrible album. Yeah, Cover. terrible. No, Co-produced by... Uh, it wasn't John a David's terrible album. It was a terrible album cover. Sorry. Yeah, right. horrible cover. <laughs> She's in a pigsty with a pig. I know. It's awful. Co-produced by John David Souther and um, oh, I didn't know and John Boylan. I didn't know Jay. Oh, and John Boylan. Yeah, who were both her. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. At the yeah, time. We're so, not going there. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so we were working on the, you know, the beginning of that Heart Like a Wheel record, and it just all fell into place. Mm. It was just one of those things that, you know, it just was destined to happen, I guess. And it's interesting because the night that we mixed You're No Good, I remember it like it was yesterday, at around 7 o'clock or 6.30, Peter said, let's do a rough mix of this. I said, okay. So we put, st put up all the tape, started doing a rough mix, and at 7 the next morning, we walked yeah. out of there 
God. with the finished record. My God. And we never piece. touched it after that. No, you don't have to, do no, you? No, it was perfect. It was crazy. And we, we couldn't wait to play it for Dave. He was yeah. like the godfather. Wow. You know, so we had to play it for him. And he was like blown away how good that was. Wow. And so then, so I come going next, back to your story, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the deal she made was she could have a... She could be released to go to asylum, but right. at any time, Capital could claim an album. So what happened was Al Corey... Yeah, I remember Al. Uh, yeah. Who was the head of A&R or right. the vice president of Capital Records. He called up Peter because he knew she was making an album. And he said, I'd like to come hear some of the tracks. So to the best of my recollection, and this could be contested, but I'm pretty sure... We played him like Faithless Love and Dark End of the Street and oh, all these wow. obscure tracks. We didn't play him You're No Good. No, right. And okay. When Will I Be Loved. Yes. Right? Which were like massive. Both yeah. went to number one. Yeah. He went back to his office and called Geffen and said, I'm taking this album. Oh. Immediately. So, so he smelled a rat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> As it were. So... Then he came back and we played him, you know, You're No Good, When Will I Be Loved. And he, right. and he said to Peter and I both at that time, he said, you know, When Will I Be Loved is going to be a bigger hit mm. than You're No Good. Oh, really? And You're No Good was such an elegant track. Oh my God. And it kidding? went to number one. But he was right. When Will I Be Loved was a bigger hit. Wow. It, it was like a, You're No Good sold about 850,000 singles. And When Will I Be Loved, I think, sold close to a million. Good Lord. I would have thought it was And I got a case of champagne from uh, Phil Everly. Oh, really? He oh, wrote it. God, lovely. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. So where does Prisoner in Disguise come in? Next that's where, album. This is when I walk in. Yes. Um, so then they wanted to, you know, wanted me to do the next record with them, which I was thrilled. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and so when I, when I started to do, this is something interesting if you go back and listen to the record. I I, I wanted to do a record with her where sonically I didn't add any bottom end to anything. Mm -hmm. So I never touched the bottom end of an equalizer. I would try to get the bottom end by mic placement. I was okay, like into so this you whole were relying on the middle and, purist yeah, yeah. kind of crazed methodology of trying <laughs> to record this record. And so the record is sounds just unbelievable. Oh, you know, because you know, I actually have the original pressing. So do I. And it's fucking I played amazing. it the other day. It's lovely. And it doesn't have any ticks or pops no, in it. No, 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 of course not, because I yeah. look after my things. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. But the thing I remember most about it were two things. Prisoner in Disguise recorded live with her and John David facing each other, sitting right. in the room at the sound factory, you know? Yeah. Both... both both people singing and playing, him playing guitar and singing. The oh, really? Oh, and chewing gum. Yeah, and got chewing it. gum. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's one take. Good God, I didn't know that. And then we brought in David to add the yeah. string quartet. See, this is the first time I met Lindner because I, I was brought in for Prisoner in Disguise coming from England with Peter Asher and whatever else, and I was introduced... Were you, no, were you like, known friends? I mean, you and Peter then? You were, I mean, or we were, were you known. just acquaintances? We were acquaintances, but um, I, I was kind of sort of kind of not in the, sort of the design clique at the time in L.A., but I knew Peter and I got, you know, some things in my portfolio which kind of opened doors. And... The Abbey Road thing? Yeah, we try not opener. to discuss that. Sure. I have a picture of me in that crosswalk with my three friends. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. I need but, that. I need to blow it up But for the you. Z-crossing <laughs> is... It's now... Is it... 
no more. I think they moved it. Or they moved it because they got tired of people getting run over in it. <laughs> I mean, there's no street signs on Abbey Road. I know. None. No. They went from the porcelain to the plastic to none. That's it. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, but it, I thought it was the National Monument, but still. Well, I don't know about that. But, but the other part that's, that's funny that's is, you know, you know the white wall that's below the lawn in the yes, front of, of Abbey Road? Yes, yes, yes. Well, yes. were they spray paint, we love you, John, George, yes, all that stuff. And, and everybody thinks it's there for posterity, and every week the guy comes out with a roller and yeah. They're painting it out. out. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, yes, it's like, yeah, I know. Yeah. I went to art school and one of my students with me was David Hockney and he used to do homoerotic mm. sort of drawings in the bathrooms mm-hmm. and every three weeks they just paint them all Paint-em out. They over. painted out millions of dollars. <laughs> so what happens with, uh, you know, you were like... Uh, well, I walked in because and Linda was sort of so humble and so lovely and so beautiful and she got this amazing pipes. And uh, we just hit it off. We still kind of talk to each other. You know, she's mm-hmm. like really you fabulous. You have to because you got all her pictures. <laughs> yeah, I've got all her beautiful pictures. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, the point is that that was uh, Prisoner in Disguise is the, the first one we did, and it was fraught because the pictures were underexposed and had to be messed with and whatever else. But from that point on. Uh, we went to do Simple Dreams. And yeah. Hasten Down the Wind. Yeah, Hasten Down the Wind. You worked on Hasten Down the Wind. Yeah, I did yeah. them all. I, I, w- I did them all. Yeah, I know. Of course you did. All the Dear boy, of course you did everything. But, but here's a, here's another interesting point. Um, you were just talking about uh, Prisoner in Disguise, the single, right. was That'll Be the Day. That'll Be the Yes, exactly. Which I mixed three times on Heart Like a Wheel and never could get it the way we wanted it. Oh. So he dumped it, ran in the studio in one day, recorded, mixed, and finished When Will I Be Loved. See, I didn't know that shit. Yeah. This isn't... That'll be the day dropped out because we never could get it to sound right. The arrangement was wrong, the feel was wrong, whatever. It just didn't happen. And When Will I Be Loved, which is the biggest hit of the record, we got one day. Oh. See, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Did it all in one day. All the vocals, everything. Boom. Done. But um, that'll be the day. The reason it ended up getting resurrected is because everybody felt it was a single. It right. Just needed the right arrangement. I would now like to talk about James Taylor because I think JT is one of your great masterpieces. Um, it was sort of an album cover that I sort of certainly got sort of embroiled in right from the start when I had to make him look like a matinee idol. And you did. And I did. Uh, but the point is, it's the grooves. And that's what I want to talk about. Because you put yeah. the grooves in there and it yeah. was like amazing stuff. Yeah, it's probably the best record I ever did. Yeah, I could. Probably in my career. And I've done, well, I have over 100 gold and platinum records. It's right. probably the best Oh, you're album. just showing off again. No. I, I mean, I'm just trying to give you a, <laughs> I say a, with love, don't worry. a perspective. <laughs> I know you do. I, I made a lot of records. <laughs> yes, true. A lot of records that most people don't even know I made, you know. Mm. Um, big records that, you know, people don't even associate me with because they associate me with Linda and James. But, you know, Four Seasons' biggest hit was December 63. Oh, what a night I did that. Oh. Orleans' biggest hit was still the one I did that. And the list is endless. But mm. the point is this. This is my first James Taylor story. Oh. So I'm about to go on the road and mix James Taylor live, and Peter says to me... Peter Asher. Yeah, Peter Asher, sorry. Hang, what's the date of this? We have to get date 1978. 78, 79. Cool, got it. Peter says to me, James is going to come to you and want to borrow money. 
<laughs> really? Don't loan it to him because you're never going to see it. Oh, no. He says, you know, he'll come to you and go, hey, uh, can, can I borrow 100 bucks? You know, and somebody goes, yeah, sure, no problem. They peel out 100 and hand it to him, and that's you never that's get it back. It. Because he used to go every day, we'd go to a different city, and he'd go like every two or three days. He'd carry his clothes in a shopping bag. Yeah, I know that. And, and he'd buy three pairs of khaki pants and three white shirts. Mm-hmm. And that was what he wore every night on stage, well, yeah. khaki yeah. pants and white. Yeah, but he used to put he he used to have those slippers that he would actually sort of put in the washing machine and then put in the microwave to dry them at the Chateau Montmont. I mean, yes, yeah. he always stayed at the Chateau Montmont. But this is a except when he was doing this record, he was the the second. No, it was yeah this record. He was staying. Lou Adler gave him. His house in Stone Canyon, so he and Carly had a place to live. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. So he was staying there. But one thing I want to mention about JT was a. Um, it was just such an. It was it was like a, a campaign record. You know what I mean by that? When they wanted to conquer Rommel in the Second World War, they sent Patton. You know, <laughs> it was a campaign. Yeah, well, James had worked with Lenny. Warnaker and yeah, right. uh, the, Russ the, the Warner Brothers crew. Yeah, the Warner Brothers crew for yeah. probably four years. Right. And right. I think, it, you know, it kind of bothered Peter because he he really discovered James and produced his You're right, from records. Apple, Apple Records days. Well, Apple back. Records yeah. and, you know, the biggest hit he had on Warner Brothers was, you know, um, Sweet Fire and Rain. Oh, Fire and Rain. And he yeah. produced that. Yes, right. So he had managed to maneuver James out of his deal at Warner Brothers, which took him out of the hands of Lenny and mm-hmm. Russ. Yeah, right. And signed him to Columbia Records. Right. So this was like Peter's team was going to make this record work. Okay. And I was part of the team, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Cooch was part of the team and right. Russ was part of the team and oh, Leland yeah, no, was part of the guys. team. Oh, my God. You know, we got to get them on the air, by the way. It, these it guys was are really bulletproof amazing. this thing, right. you know. So... One cute, interesting story. When we were doing the vocals to um, Traffic Jam, do you remember that track? Yes, of course I do. It's four-part harmony, and and James sang all the parts. Right. But the bass part, the night he did it, he'd had a few cocktails. His voice, (laughs) he was a little wrecked, and his voice was low, and he sang it perfectly. But we discovered a, a, a couple days later that one of the sections was a little out of tune, so we had to get him to re-sing it. Hmm. But he couldn't get down to the notes, so, so nice we had to get him like, stoned God, again. I know this? <laughs> we, oh no! I didn't <laughs> so know this. So he could this. sing it. Yeah. <laughs> Funny, oh, right? Yes, very. Okay. So, <laughs> um, the the, the uh, JT record, you know, was very uh, organic. You know, it was six weeks start to finish. That um, was pretty brief. Yeah. It was all the basic tracks cut with him singing, playing live. Mm-hmm. Very few, you know, um, fixes. Which which studio? Were sound you? Factory. Oh, it's in the Sound Factory. Yeah, okay. Sound Factory. I yeah. did all of his stuff at the Sound ah, Factory that's what I wanted until to know. we yeah. got to Dad Loves His Work. Uh, oh, oh, and Dad Loves His Lunch, as we used to call yes, it. Yes, and that was all done at Record One. <laughs> right. Oh. Which, uh, we have to was, get to real soon. Yeah, yeah which okay. was Her Town too. Yes, right. Which yeah. everybody thought was about James and Carly. Yes, right. But if you remember the lyrics... Uh, she gets the house in the garden. He gets the boys in the band. Mm. It was about Betsy and Peter. Yeah. Oh. James and JD wrote it about Betsy and Peter, and Betsy actually threatened to sue us 
if they put it out as okay. a single because she was convinced everyone would know. And then the other thing I wanted to mention about the JT record, aside from the fact that Smiling Face and Honey Don't Leave L.A. Yeah, and right. oh, Handyman yeah. and all these great songs, there was a song on it... Um, in this day, an ocean. Uh, I can't think of the title of it. Oh, fuck. I da, da, da. It was a duet with James and Carly. Yes, right, right. And and then you heard the repeat of it and a repeat of it's, it again. It's a reprise, well, we'd yeah. done three takes of it. And when I was mixing it, I forgot and left the other two open. And it started to repeat, so I just staggered the levels and went, this is fantastic. Oh, right, that's how it happened. And this day, and this day, and this day. You know, it just kept repeating every phrase through the whole song. And it was simply because I left those faders open. I should tell the audience, by the way, that Val is gesticulating. It's just like pointing things out which we can't see. But the point oh, yeah. is, yeah, we, can't we get see the it. message. Okay. <laughs> so then when we were making the record, as I was telling you earlier, James... And Cooch were sitting in the in the vocal booth, the side studio to the control room where I had James all set up for his live recording of his voice and guitar. They were just jamming, you know, and they started jamming on this song, Handyman. And the minute we heard it, because I had the mics open in the control room, mm-hmm. Peter and I went running out and going, oh, my God, we got it. And he's like, I'm not fucking doing another mm-hmm. oldie, period. Oh, right, yeah. So it took a while to convince him, but that was the hit off that record. It was fabulous. Yeah. yeah. And the harmony voice um, is Leah Kunkel. Oh, is that Lee? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Leah Kunkel, who we I all know, know is yeah, Cass well, Elliott's sister. Yes, right, yeah. Yeah. With his cascading white hair. And phenomenal singer yeah. she is. Yes, I, I produced her solo record. I didn't know that. Her and Rust and I did it, yeah. Oh. Yeah, she's a great singer. And then, what else? Um... The Flag album was wonderful. Uh, we well, James was going through a rather dark patch. Yeah, but point. we did that in New York, most of it, or some of it. I'm sorry, we did some of it in New York. Because the cover of the Flag album means Man Overboard. That's exactly. the whole point of it. Exactly. And then on the other side, the back end of it was Man Rescued, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about my nautical flags, but James did. Um, but that's sort of the whole point of that, and that's where... Um, Rolling Stone accused me of doing the most bland album cover. I think ever. it's fantastic. Well, yeah, but it's, it's in neon. You know, it's yeah, you a day pink and yellow, and it's bland. I don't know. No. So, but that's where James actually said to me, "Never, ever read your reviews." Yeah, right. Ever. Yeah. So I haven't since. Have you? Yeah, good. No, I don't. <laughs> um, but we were making that record, and a lot of it we were doing in New York. So we wanted to do strings on it, and. Oh. James and Peter wanted to get Arif Martin to do it. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, Atlantic Records. Yes. Right. So wow. I'll never forget this as long as I live. We went over to Arif's apartment, which was gorgeous. He was on like the 50th floor in some of course. plaza building. And and we went up to his apartment and and Peter, who's you know so humble and sweet, you know, was like asking him nicely. Uh, because he has that English right. gentleman sort of right. manner. Would you be so kind <laughs> as to allow us to ask you uh, to arrange the strings for this track for us? And mm. he, of course, was thrilled to death and immediately went downstairs in his wine cellar and brought up a, <laughs> 19, a 1967 Lafitte Rothschild. Yeah, of course, yes, Mouton Rothschild. Yeah, so we went and cut the strings at, at uh, Shelley's studio at Atlantic, his room, uh. which I found really weird because – in any studio I've been in in the world where you push the faders up 
it got louder. Mm-hmm. And when you pulled them back towards yeah. you, it got quieter. Right. In this studio, you pushed them up and it got quieter. A what? So they were backwards. So every time I had to do something, I had to think in reverse. Oh, God. And, she, and Shelly set it up that way because that's the way it is at the BBC. So if you're on the air and you fall asleep, it doesn't get cut off. It gets louder. Oh, my God. I didn't know. This yeah. is amazing stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we did, we did the strings there, which were phenomenal. And the track up on the roof went on to become the big hit of the record. Right, yes. Right. Which, to me, is one of my favorite tracks of his. Blues, yeah. It's just beautifully done. Listen to it um, on vinyl. <laughs> we also had a track on there called Brother Trucker. Yes, I remember that. Uh, where we had to fly his brother Alex in from the vineyard to sing the backgrounds on it. You know, we couldn't find a, a hotel room for him that night because we worked till like 2 in the morning, so... Peter was on the phone and he said, James, I think the only thing we can find is a suite at the Plaza. You know, it's like 900. And James is like, yeah, let him. Go ahead. Oh, nice. He checked out 28 days later. <gasps> oh. <laughs> or something ridiculous. I don't remember. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, it was like hysterical. Anyway, um, so when we got back to L.A. to finish the record, James wanted to get a sound of truck tires. For, to put in kind of like the background noise in Brother Trucker. So we're driving up and down the 5 freeway, me with a Nakamichi digital oh, okay. recorder yeah, and a yeah. shotgun mic yeah, aiming right. at the truck tires yeah, right. trying to record them. And the truck drivers kept pulling over thinking we were like the EPA checking right. him for oh, noise sure. level. And, and then finally James James was hanging out the window of the of the limo going, I'm James Taylor, we just want the sound of your tires. And the, you know. Valgaray has, in fact, six Grammys. I've only got three. Nine nominations. Fuck. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've got seven nominations. And an Emmy. Oh, and an Emmy. Oh, fuck. See? See, he's got more <laughs> shit. Oh, fuck. All right. Um, <laughs> Valgre, tell me. John Cors. John Cors. <laughs> uh, let's talk about um, Kim Carnes. Okay. Because Betty Davis Eyes is, in fact, you know, one of the most amazing singles ever produced. Biggest hit and single I ever produced. Yes. And well, uh, yeah. And, Number and, one in the Billboard charts for... 11 weeks. Yeah, wow. See, that's what I wanted you to talk about. Yeah. You just did it, though. Um, I just want you to say, like, how you got introduced to Kim Cars and how you worked on the sound, how you put it all together. And this was recorded in Record One? Yes. Yes. It and was. we haven't touched on and, your beautiful studio. And the night that we... we The concept of Kim Carnes' album, Mistaken Identity, was live. Right. We wanted to record everything live, every song, vocals... Band, everything. Right. So we went into Lee's rehearsal studios in North Hollywood for three weeks to rehearse all the material. Okay. The night we rehearsed Betty Davis' eyes, it was the night John Lennon was killed. Oh, no. I mean, it was so weird. Yeah, I was teaching it was you. The, see it was that the happened. night, yeah. and, oh. and then to end up <sighs> nominated for a Grammy against John Lennon oh. for Record of the Year. Right. An album of the year. No, I didn't notice. Oh my god! That's that that same Grammy. Yeah, he he uh, just like starting over was the single and yes, right. And the album was the album of the year, which he won over Kim Carnes and Mistaken Identity, which I thought was a little weird because mm. we had the song of the year, the uh, the record. Right, of the year. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes but sense. I think it was a lot of sympathy towards the fact that he'd uh, lost his life. Lenny, you know? yeah, right, yeah. I mean, the album was good. No oh, question, yeah. but. Yeah, but I don't think it was as good as Betty Davis. Had. 
Anyway. He muttered that, you noticed. <laughs> and it was funny, too, because when I was a kid and starting out making music, I loved the Beatles, and I always you know, dreamt of being anywhere on that level, and here mm. I am competing for the record of the year with John yeah. Lennon. Betty Davis' eyes. Um, I would like to know how you put that together. Did you realize this was going to be the number one record, the number one single well, of 1980? There was a few clues along the way. Ah. Um, first of all, the, the song was recorded live in its entirety. It was nothing overdubbed on it that I can think of. Uh, and oh, really? the vocals live, everything live. And thank God. I did the rough mix that night to quarter-inch tape because I spent four yeah. days chasing that rough mix and never could beat it. So that's a rough mix I did the night we caught Good it. Good Lord. I didn't, yeah, wow. Two days later, Kenny Rogers came by to say hi to Kim because they'd worked together many times. He, she wrote, you know, Gideon and Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer for him and sang it with him. And he came with uh, Lionel Richie, who he was working with at the time. And we played him the track, and Lionel looked at me and he goes, the only way that's not going to be a number one record is if Indian chanting gets really big. Oh, God, you have to explain. Come on. Indian chanting, I doubt seriously that's going to happen, so it's going to be a huge hit. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so you knew all along that well, this was going to be... Once... I'd heard it, and once everybody had reacted to it, I was convinced that it was huge. Mm. The The final key was we're sitting in my office at Record One. The record's been released for two days. I can't remember. Uh, Sam Riddle was playing it on, what was the station in L.A., the big Drake Chenault chain station? Oh, uh, K-something, uh, K um, anyway. Yeah. And, and he played it and said... You know, call in. Let us know what you think. And so we decided in my office on the speakerphone, let's call in and tell them we love it. And, you know, <laughs> hype it, right? <laughs> so we call in, and they answered. Good. And we said, God, could you play that? We tried to act dumb. Could yeah. you play that Betty Witch, Betty something? Yeah. <laughs> and the guy goes, if I get one more call from that, I'm never going to play it again. Oh, my God. So we so knew you, then. You got it. Yeah, you got it. we knew. And the night that we were doing the Grammys... We were kind of like looking at each other, Kim and I, because the album of the year went to John Lennon. Mm -hmm. The female vocalist of the year went to uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, for what? <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, for fabulous. best female pop vocal or something crazy. Mm. And when they were reading, and the album of the year went to John Lennon, and they were reading the song of the year went to us, but the album of the year went to John. And they're reading the the nominations for the record of the year. And when they read the song that Lionel Richie did with Diana Ross, uh, "Endless Love," uh, yeah, the yeah. audience went nuts. Uh, and Kim and I looked at each other and went, "Oh, oh no, dear. We're, we're screwed." Mm. Then Kenny Loggins and Pat Benatar got to read the winner of the record of the year. And when they opened the thing, and I was looking at Kenny because I know Kenny, and he looked at me and he kind of, <laughs> he laughed. I knew he won. Oh, wow. I want to talk about your state-of-the-art studio, record one, on Ventura Boulevard. Uh, come on, tell me about how you built it uh, and why and all the background that goes into the fact that you had the, probably the premier studio in the whole of Los Angeles. For 10 years. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, what happened was uh, I was working at the Sound Factory for many years, and 
I kind of had a falling out with the owner, who was my mentor and teacher, Dave Hassinger. And it happened because someone during one of the sessions, not mine, stole a 67, Neumann 67 microphone. My God. And he said, I'm taking the cost of that out of all your paychecks. And I said, no, you're not. Mm. So we got into this kind of Mexican standoff, me being Mexican. <laughs> and so I left the sound factory along with 70% of their business. Yeah, well, of course, you took your clients with you. Well, I went to Studio 55. Ah, okay. And what, 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 Richard Perry Studio? Yeah. Yes, right. And this okay. went on for about three months. Okay. I didn't I th- know you were working with Richard Perry's. I, I worked at his studio. Because I was there. I just rented uh, the studio. Ah, okay. But Because I was doing the pointers and I was doing Yes, the, yeah, but right, I was okay. doing the Eric Kaz Craig Fuller record. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, what a great cover. I found it the other day. Yeah. Yes, we have to put that up. We have to put that so up. So I, yeah. I went uh, to Studio 55, and when I was getting ready to mix it, they called me from the sound factory because they suddenly realized they'd extradited me, but they extradited about 80% of their business. Good God. Mm. So they let me come back. So at that point, I kind of knew that I was in a tenuous position, mm. that I could be, you know, extricated from what I do for a living at any time at anybody's whim. I needed my own studio. So I went to my lawyer at the time and I said, we got to find somebody who wants to invest in the studio. So about three months later, he called me up and he said, I want you to have a meeting with Mel Simon. Do you know who Mel Simon is? No, I don't. I don't. Mel Simon is Simon & Associates. They probably own half of Indiana. They own the (laughs) Indiana Pacers. They own 180 million square feet of shopping centers around the world. Okay. And he's a billionaire, and he wanted to get into Hollywood. Oh, okay. So John, uh, John says... We'll have a meeting at your house in the kitchen. You tell him what you want to do, blah, blah, blah. So he comes over. He's a great guy, funny, Jewish, kind of chunky guy. Uh, started out selling encyclopedia door to door. Oh, really? Oh, cool. And now he's worth a billion and a half or whatever. <laughs> Lovely. So he asked me why you know, I want to do this, and I explained to him what I just said to you. And I said, you know, he said, do you have any idea where you want to do it? And I said, no. Do you have any idea what it costs? I said, no. I said, you know, but I'm sure it's going to cost a couple of million dollars. And he said, how much do you think you need to get started? And I said, I don't know, 900000 He said, okay. So he pulled out a checkbook and wrote me a check in the kitchen for Good whatever. Uh, and I called up Steve Waldman, who was my guy, my chief engineer, who at the time was working at Conk Studios in London for yeah. Davies. And he flew home and we started record one. And then I started looking for property all over Southern California, and I was living in Sherman Oaks at the time at the top of Dixie Canyon, and I happened to be driving down Ventura Boulevard and saw that Robert's, which was a restaurant in Hollywood and Sherman Oaks, this one closed. Hmm. So it went into an SBA foreclosure, and I went in and bought the property for like 400 Really? Wow. And started tearing the building down. And turned it into the most amazing studio in the yeah. world. Yes, right. And I pulled on everybody that I knew for everything. Yeah, you, right. For this, me. and <laughs> colors and logos. And, you know, I just said everyone that I Oh, I did the I logo knew. for you, didn't I? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, man. Right. You, you've it's done true. all my logos. Yes, that's true. This is true. So here's an interesting fact. How many studios are there in the world? I couldn't tell you that Not number, high. but I'm sure it's huge. Mm. In a five-year period of time, the record of the year came out of record one, three out of five wow. years. See? I did Betty Davis' Eyes. Mm-hmm. Toto did Rosanna. Oh, right. My God. And yeah. Don Henley did The Boys of Summer. Right. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. It's coming know? out of that. Well, yeah. One room, record of the year, three out of five years. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's a fabulous studio. So yeah. It's kind of and then I sold it. Didn't and you introduce me to John Frankenheimer there yes. in, the, in the parking lot? Yes, yeah. I did. What am I doing? Why am I meeting him? Oh, yes. <laughs> what were you doing? He was there? responsible for putting the whole deal together. I mean, it wasn't oh, for him. He was, was my lawyer at the time. Oh, I didn't realize. For like 15 years, he was my oh, lawyer. Okay. Record One obviously became one of the greatest studios in Los Angeles, if not the whole country. But when you were putting it together, you obviously had. You had plans. You had to know what it sounded like. You had to make the people who were coming there comfortable because um, that's very important. Uh, so what, what, what went through your mind when you suddenly thought, oh, I've got this lot and now I've got to do something with it? One of my um, minors in college was architecture. Ah. And the only reason I didn't become an architect was because one summer I, I apprenticed at an architectural firm and I spent all summer working on this project where I would research the... F type of wood for the floors and the type of wood for the cabinets and kind of tiles in the bathrooms and the, and it was just meticulous and the contractor came in to build the house and he goes can't get that replace it with the plywood can't get that replace it with it and I went I don't want to do this mm. so I went out and when I when I bought the property I went out and I bought a seven foot drafting table right. and I sat down bought a roll of vellum spread it out and I started drawing the plans myself I drew oh, I all that, the yeah. plans for that studio okay but I had to hire an architectural firm because I didn't have a license. Uh, so they had to transfer them into you know, their drawings, their firm, and then get a plan check so that we could build it. But I actually drew it. Yeah, but, but you also had to take care of the sound. Uh, I, I, mean, wanted the to, the... I wanted to copy, which I did, the control room and studio at the sound factory to a quarter of an inch. Okay. I spent six months measuring every square inch of that control room with That's the sound factory. That's what I wanted to get out of you. Every square <laughs> inch. I still have the drawings. I mean, I measured everything from every angle possible. So when we built the control room, and I didn't figure this out till 30 years later, but when we built the control room, the studio was exactly the same shape, just bigger. Mm -hmm. In other words, from the window of the control room to the far wall was about four feet farther. And from the window on the side one to that wall was about four feet farther because we had the room. So it was right. the studio was just bigger, but it was the same shape, the L shape playing around the control. Right, yeah. Because of all the studios that I worked in, I wanted this thing to be bright and cheerful. I yes, didn't want it to be the big dark. Thing. Yeah. So yeah. I did the control room in white oak. And you buy the wood from Arkansas, and it's random length, random width, and it has to be put in one board at a time. And the mistake I made and didn't realize it till 30 years later, <clears throat> and I f figured it out, the speakers were in a soffit in the wall. Right. And if you went to the sound factory, you saw the big square where the super reds were sitting mm -hmm. on both sides. At record one, I paneled over them and cut the holes so the speakers came through. Right. And it deadened the box and oh. changed the top end of the room. So I had a, a painter water white lacquer the entire control room to get the top end up. Oh and I God. never could figure out why I had to do that because the wood was the same density as the as the walnut was in the sound factory. Right. But I'd paneled over the cabinet so it looked prettier and <laughs> cut the holes where <laughs> the speakers were. Well, <laughs> it changed it. And I figured it out because I went to a studio called Shangri-La in, in Malibu that my friend Jim Niper had and he had the same boxes and they sounded exactly the same as the control room at the sound factory. Oh, really? And it was because of that. Hmm. It changed it. So what I did was I had the state of the art way before anybody else did because of Steve Waldman, who was my chief engineer. Right. Funny. He'd researched QLock, 
which was a company in England that allowed you to lock two 24 tracks together. Nobody had that capability. I had it right from the very beginning wow. of day one. I had the console built by API. It's the last one that came off the floor before they went bankrupt. Yeah. I had transformerless mic preamps in mm. all 40 inputs to that console. Nobody so how many? How, yeah, okay. Um, it, it, so everything how many channels was, do you have on that board? Well, it was 40 inputs. 40. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But uh, nobody had this kind of technology when I no, built right. this. I so I was capable of running 224 tracks all the time. I mean, everything about it was like just the absolute cutting edge of everything. And everything, coming from my design point of view, everything was so pretty. Beautiful. Because, you know... All um, the furniture was European. Yeah, because, big, you know... white... You, well, one when the recording studios, it was, like, dark. I mean, go to the, you know, village recorders, something was all very dark. Yeah, everything. and padded. But this was, and, like... Yeah, right. And this was, like, very airy and very comfortable. Big fireplace. Yes, I room. know. It was just like, oh, this is Kitchen was beautiful. And I think that sort of, the ambiance has set it up for, you know, the recording artists because they could feel, you know, they're comfortable and relaxed. And, uh, well, yeah, and I had to have two payphones in the bathrooms, remember? Oh, yes. Because Linda wanted payphones so nobody could listen to her. Yeah, talk. so she could call Jerry Brown. Whoever. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask, but I had a payphone. Oh, no, I had each of the two bathrooms. I know who she was calling. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> Two payphones. Val Gray, I now need to know what you're doing now because obviously you've had this amazing career and you're still working um, and I'd like to know what you're up to and why and are you having fun because that's the whole point. Right. Is yeah, I, yes. I, I'm, if I wasn't having fun, I wouldn't be doing it. No, of course. We don't. Yeah, so, right. so that part is without question. That goes without saying. Okay. But um, what I've worked on recently, there's this wonderful, wonderful Double platinum artist out of Canada. Uh, the artist's name is Islove. You know, go to Islove Universe and and check him out. Uh, he had a really big hit uh, a year ago or a year and a half ago called Goodbye. Uh, he did it with this DJ Glenn Morrison. And uh, when we get off, I'll play this for you so oh, you can hear yes, it yes, and yes, you'll yes. see what I'm talking about. But we did, we wrote. Um, I wrote four of the eight songs we did so far. Um, oh, you're still him. writing, which oh, yeah. is cool. Oh, I wrote yeah. with him. Okay. Uh, we did eight songs, and it's probably the best thing I've done in 25 years. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's just... That's saying something. And everyone that's heard it has just gone crazy. Women, I mean, start weeping. Oh. I mean, it's just amazing. And the guy, you know, the guy looks position. like... <laughs> In the original video for Goodbye, he looks like this kind of, I don't know how you describe it. I'll show it to you. Yeah. And now, you know, he's got a beard down to here and long hair down to here. Like we used to have. Very, yeah, very earthy. <laughs> really, really earthy. But the music is about that kind of stuff. Oh, cool. And um, I'll play a few bars of this track so you can hear what I'm talking about. But We can do that as an outro maybe? Oh, my God. Yes, he, we he should try and do this. that. It, yeah, it's okay. great, though. Okay, I mean, cool. really great. Right. And um, and then there's about a, you know I just work with a 14 year old heavy metal rap artist mm. that's signed to Ooh, uh, heavy metal rap. rap artist yeah okay that's interesting uh, Alarm for War oh that's his name. I got a logo coming in my really head good now. really got good a logo. I mean I the kid's an amazing rapper 14 wow. years old and his father is uh, in a famous metal band and, are we allowed um, to name the metal band. Uh, yeah, it's uh, um, Bradley Dean and the Sons of Liberty. It's okay. a Christian metal band. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah, very controversial figure. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Really great guy, though. 
you know, and, and two or three mixing projects had flown in and out as I'm doing this. But the last six months has been like a whirlwind. Good. So, you know, I'm thrilled. Yeah, yeah. We just keep going until we kind of croak. I, I'll yeah. do it till they won't let me do it. <laughs> till we croak. Yeah, <laughs> till right. they tell me I can't do it anymore. You're done. Okay. Yeah. Goodbye. Well, thank you so much for coming in My and pleasure. doing this with me. This has been really a gas. You've told me so many things I didn't know. And I'm well, sure no, the, so many things you hadn't heard. Yeah, okay. You know a lot. Well, yeah, true, but we keep, <laughs> we've got all these secrets we keep quiet. Yeah, right, so, exactly. Uh, but anyway, I want to thank you so much for coming in and doing Thanks. this. Because Thanks for right. having me. All right, man, thank you so much. All right. You have been listening to the great producer and music engineer Val Gray. His list of iconic hits is daunting. Just listen to the quintessential album JT by James Taylor. Or download the entire single Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. And as you just heard, his Record One Studios was the premier recording facility in Los Angeles in the 1980s. His trademark is obviously, if it's not perfect, it is not going out. Not Val's exact words, but me speaking on his behalf, having known him for four decades, man and boy. A quick plug before I go. I'm online at koshdesign.blogspot.com and you can find me on Facebook at Kosh Art. This is The Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends on Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thank you for stopping by and we hope to see you next time. Cheers. Can I get a beer in here? Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Art of Rock is written by Kosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit 
rnrap.com for more information.